Okay, here's where we're going. We're in Ephesians 1 here in just a few minutes. We're talking about the benefits of the Bible study. We've had that discussion. We talked about some of the dangers. For those of you who weren't with us last week, I just want to re, re-back up so you catch right in the middle of our discussion. Problems with Bible study could be false teachers. That was in the New Testament. Becoming too familiar with the text that you just kind of, okay, you know the story of uh, David and Goliath, so you don't study it anymore. You just assume you got all the details. Or becoming reliant upon others, imposing too much, or what is called a poor hermeneutic. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean by a poor hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is, we've talked about last week, and if you remember... It is basically uh, from the Greek that just means to explain to or interpret something. And everybody has a hermeneutic. You come to the Bible with an idea that says, okay, here's how I'm going to explain the Bible. I believe it's God's word, totally inerrant, inspired. Or I believe that you know, portions that t- deal with religion, they're inspired, but other portions aren't. Or I don't even believe that the Bible is inspired. And uh, I believe that man man wrote it and it wasn't put out by God so it's good moral stories whatever somebody comes to it they have a hermeneutic here is an article somebody handed me and it's written by a gentleman whose God Squad is, the, uh, is their group. My Bible study group has a guy who believes that the Bible is the perfect Word of God. It also has a guy who thinks that the Bible is filled with lots of contradictions and mistakes. Help. Who's right? Dear help. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we have two stories, and I don't know where this is going as far as how they answer the question. Um, In the first two chapters of Genesis, we have two stories that do not fit together. In the first account, the man and the woman are created together as equals in the image of God. In the second account, the woman is created from Adam's rib. Is that correct, that there's two accounts? Okay. Chapter 1 has an abbreviation. Chapter 2 has more detail of that. And some will look and say it's two creations. Okay, because it's two accounts. This guy responds, says, For those who believe that the Bible is a mess, the solution to this textual conflict is simple. There are two completely different stories because there are two completely different authors. For those who say the Bible is perfect... In the case of Jewish interpreters of the Bible, rabbis of the first two centuries taught that the two different stories are actually the stories of the creation of two different women. Eve was the woman created from Adam's rib, but the woman who was created in chapter 1 was a separate woman named Lilith. Anybody ever hear this? Yes, no? Okay, it's news to me. I hadn't heard it. Lilith said unto Adam, we, uh, yeah, Lilith said to Adam, we were created equal since we were created from the same earth. There was no understanding between them. And when Lilith saw that Adam was trying to force himself on her, she uttered the name of God and disappeared into the air. The man stood in prayer before his creator and said, oh, master of the universe, the woman you gave me has fled from me. The angels went after her and finally overtook her in the midst of the Red Sea. Lilith is the result of trying to make the Bible complete. But her comparison to Eve we see but in her comparison to Eve, we see a way of making religious views of women whole. Both parts of the image of woman must be sanctified. Lilith must be invited back into your life from the Red Sea. That is how you interpret the Bible. Really? Really? And that solution what bothered me most in this article, besides all those screwy stuff, is This is the explanation for those who say the Bible is perfect. I believe the Bible is perfect. I don't know about you. I would never advocate to this garbage. 
and yet we're put into that group. By the way, why is there two different, um, two different accounts given in Genesis 1 and 2? Why does it say God created, and then chapter 2, he gives the details? Is there two different creations? No, why, why is that done that way? You can see that that's a discussion people bring up. You have to have an answer. Exactly. It happens frequently. It happened in, in Hebrew literature in particular, is that in ancient list, literature, they would give the synopsis and then they would give detail. And so it follows, it, it follows a normal pattern of literature from the ancient world that we see in a lot of different literature that's extra-biblical as well. And so it's not a contradiction. It's, a, it's the way that they wrote at that time. And so Moses would have been familiar with that. It doesn't mean there's two different authors. It means the author is following his culture. And uh, so understanding that, there's no problem with the text. But that's a hermeneutic. This guy has a hermeneutic. He even, he even classified there's two groups of people, the two hermeneutics. The Bible is a mess. The Bible is a perfect group, uh, groups of people. And so you get a sense of what we're talking about in this regard. Um, and we talked about last week, if you weren't with us, we gave you several very common American approaches that are being taught in seminaries, that are being taught in Bible call or in colleges, um, not not what we would call a Bible college, but these are the, your basic different re, uh, religious views. And so most every denomination subscribes to one of these views. And so whether it be believers or unbelievers, those who say, okay, the Bible is a religious book we want to study, these are your common points of view. The bottom one is the one that we're going to advocate for. It's called dispensationalism. And basically, this is the approach of dispensationalists. The Bible is God's word. It's authoritative. It's more conservative in approaching it. We see a distinction between Israel and the church, though always saved by faith. You remember James 1, if your faith without works is... Dad, okay, so if somebody has faith, how does their work show up? What kind of works do they do? The works for believers in the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament was different than for the believers in the New Testament era. And so that's the point that we're making, and we're going to get into that in a few more minutes. But let me, re- let me remind you where we've been. In everything... In every part of life, there are rules we need to follow or it's going to be a mess. Rules of the road, rules for eating in a restaurant, rules for sports. Even in your family, you have certain rules and procedures you go by. When we're coming to the Bible to interpret, we who are dispensationalists approach and we say, these are the rules, these are our presuppositions, these are how we approach the Bible. We come with this rule in our mind, that the Bible is God's Word. That means that the Bible is true, it's accurate, the supernatural really did happen. And so we started this question last week. We wrapped up and got this far that said, okay, how do we come to the point that we believe and accept that the Bible is the Word of God? And we said that it comes, first of all, by faith. Okay, And this is that whole argument of apologetics. You get into apologetics, and some people can go overboard on the idea of, okay, I want all the evidences, and if all the evidences line up, then I believe there's a God. No, no, no. Hebrews 11 says that we believe there is a God by faith. 
We come by faith. And so we start with faith that we believe God and God is. And yet we do have, are there evidence that support the faith? Just like there's evidences um, that support you getting into a car and you drive it by faith. You, you turn the key by faith. You hit the brakes by faith. But it's based on some evidential experience or knowledge that you have. So too we come and we say, okay, we believe the Bible is God's word. We believe it by faith. But our faith is based on some facts. Facts such as the claims of the Bible. You can look in the Bible and you can clearly see that Old Testament writers, they understood they were being, they were being spoken to by God. Jesus said, yes, they were. They were being spoken to by God. And he authenticated their belief. So we believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe Jesus is inerrant in his speech. Therefore, Jesus advocated and said the Old Testament was inspired like those writers thought. New Testament writers call the Old Testament Scripture. It has the idea of inerrant writings. It's the idea of inspired writings. And they understood that the Old Testament was inerrant. They understood that what they were writing down was also be giving, coming to them by God Almighty. So they were very careful, very confident. And in fact, they quote other writings, <coughs> such as Timothy is quoting, it says, the ox is worthy of its hire. That is coming from Luke, that Luke had written down, and he calls it scripture. So uh, putting it all together, these individuals are understanding that what they are writing is, as it claims, to be from the word of mouth of God, the correctness. And we got this far. The Bible is correct in all areas. You cannot find mistakes in it if you talk about history. And there have been many who have tried to find errors and, um, and mistakes in the Bible historically. And we read accounts last week to you that a couple of those individuals who sought that, they got born again as they did the study. That's happened multiple times. And so you have archaeology that just keeps on advocating and saying yes. And it's not that, it's not that, um, uh, that the evidence discounts the Bible. What we are finding as time goes by is that the evidence only might be uncovered in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 90s, 2000. And so archaeology is catching up with the Bible. And every time they catch up with the Bible, they find out the areas that they questioned they find out, wait a minute, it is true. It's absolutely true. You have accounts where, and again, this is you know, some accounts that deal with the Red Sea. Where did it happen? The Exodus. And there are some who have done the archaeological research that say, wait a minute, you go to a certain spot, and I don't know if this is the spot, but this is the type of study that people do archaeologically to say, okay, what about the Bible? Uh, can we verify certain things in the Bible? And they go to this area of the Gulf of Aqaba, and that's facing south, and they find a variety of different evidences that seem to point that this is probably the spot, such as it says in Exodus that they were turning and they were in the Pi Haharath, that is the hole in the mountain. One, when you stand there and you look backwards, it looks like a hole in the mountain. The town that's called here is Nuwebi, and years ago, it comes from several generations back, it's called the mouth of, or the waters of Moses' opening. There's a column there, and on the column, there is the writing of Mizram or Egypt, death, water, Pharaoh, Yahweh. And so there's different words that they're able to see and say, okay, whoever put this here, and supposedly by King Solomon, uh, put it there he's dedicating this spot as having been the site, so to speak. And then you have all these other evidences that show that there is a channel, there's a, there's a bridge that's, uh, that's under the water, and then drop-offs quite, 
quite deep right around that uh, underwater bridge and underneath the water they find these types of evidences where there are axles, some gold, some that are, that are already inside of uh, the different coral that has grown around it and they've even found horses, hoofs and bones from people and, and horses. You have those evidential type things. It goes to the city of, Josh, of uh, uh, Jericho and they've done explorations and there was people that said oh no it can't be true what the Bible is saying and then when they unearthed and went deeper they found that wait a minute there was two tiers there was an inner wall and there was an outer wall and when they did the research archaeologically they found that everything fell outwards that the wall when it collapsed except for one section of the building they also found there that there was a lot of pots that still had a lot of the harvest that had just come in they were full and that makes sense because it says at the time of the floods that this happened, which was the time of a harvest season. And so, uh, so you read the account and you say that they went in and they left everything. And that's amazing that if they were plundered, that all the food storages that they find are full, the pots, and they were burned. Well, that fits the account exactly that the, that the foods were left and the city was completely burned. So you have archaeological evidence that keeps on piling up as time goes by that says, yes, the accounts in Scripture are very, very accurate. You have science. You have prophecy. There's, uh, there's multiple prophetic statements given in the Bible that talk and give a lot of specifics, such as 400 years before he lived, Isaiah said Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he names the man. Persia wasn't even on the map as a, as a world empire. And Isaiah is saying, you know, here's going to come a man, and he's going to decree that the Jews can go back and, and uh, start rebuilding their land. And it's like, wait a minute, at the time that he's stating it, Persia was not was not an influential kingdom, so why are we naming this king? But 400 years later, it came to pass. Uh, Daniel has a lot of specific predictions. In fact, Daniel made predictions and named some countries and empires that uh, that he specifically said that who they would be that would come in and be the world empires. Now, when Daniel is writing. And he talks about Greece being a world empire. Greece was not a world empire at that time. But several years later, you know, decades later, when Alexander the Great approaches Jerusalem, he is marching in that 330s BC. He's marching through the region. And the people in Jerusalem, they are there under the impression he's going to come in and march and he's going to wipe them out and he's going to plunder the temple. So the high priest with a number of people, they go out and they meet Alexander the Great with his army before he gets to Jerusalem. And they show him from Daniel chapter 8 verse 21 that it talks about Greece coming and becoming a world empire. And uh, he is so impressed, he goes into Jerusalem and spends a couple days there. And he's, he also claims in the writings that are put out that he had a dream a number of years before where he saw these men dressed in white coming out and from that city that in his mind years later he is saying okay that's exactly what I dreamed. Those guys that look just like that coming from that city. And so they put it together and, they, and he sees the prophecy. But Daniel is writing years before. Alexander the Great was even, was even you know, a character, a figure. And the way the liberals get around to this and say, well, the reason Daniel was so accurate in naming empires like Greece, Medo-Persia, and Rome is because... He wrote after they happened. 
Okay, And so therefore, Daniel might have written, but somebody added to his book years later, and as things were happening, they were adding to the book. And so there's a different hermeneutic that approaches that says, okay, if I want to discount the Bible, I have to come up with conclusions. You and I say, wait a minute, why can't we just accept the fact that the Bible was written and inspired by God because the prophetic statements that are made are so amazing? Things that couldn't be controlled. Think with me for just a minute. If Jesus was a normal person and he wasn't God, let's start with that premise. If Jesus was a normal person and not God, what prophecies were made about Jesus, very specific prophecies made about him that he would have had no control over? Where he was born. Okay. Well, the virgin birth, they would say, well, that's just, that's a bunch of hokey. What about his death? Okay, he's on a cross. What's that? Okay, well, the way he was executed, okay, that wasn't his choice. What else happened on the cross that was not his control? What's that? His bones not broken, but they broke the other people. What else? Gambling for his clothes, the, um, the pieces of silver, the 30 pieces of silver. What other predictions? He's taken down from the cross, and where is he buried? In a borrowed tomb. He had no control over that. Between the thieves. That, those were things that if he was just a, a regular human being, he couldn't have controlled that. And yet all those predictions are made, and they say, well, they were written later. Really? Most of those predictions come out of the book of Psalms. And that, everybody accepts, was written hundreds of years before. By who? Most of it written by David. And so that's an accepted fact. And the Jews' Bible was already completed hundreds of years before. And had those, and there's documentation that says those verses were already round, around in the Masoretic texts that were preceding the life of Jesus Christ. And so then when the liberals will say to you, they will say to you, yeah, but somebody added that to the Bible years later. You just said that that's not historical fact. What you're saying is you're just, you're repeating some statement but not knowing the facts. The facts are all those writings were completed hundreds of years before he came. That's the facts historically that, you know, that everybody knows. But you probably heard somebody just suggest this that doesn't know history or the Bible history. So you have all these, these prophecies. It's an amazing thing. That how, uh, it just points that there, there is supernatural involvement in the writing of the book of scriptures. Let me give you a third area. That this is food for thought. The consistency of the Bible. One of those evidential facts, why we accept the Bible as God's word. The consistency of the Bible. What I mean by that is this. That the Bible has a consistent message which is amazing considering these facts that the Bible was written over a 1,600-year period. It covers much more history. But we're talking, <clears throat> we're talking from the period of time when Moses is writing around 1,400, and he's the one that, that penned, according to Christ and others, he penned the first five books, the books of Moses. And so he's starting to write it down around 1,400 B.C., 
covering history for the thousands of years before that. And John finishes up book of Revelation on 100. So you're taking a book, you're putting it together, and a book that is written over a period of around uh, 1,600 years, it's an amazing thought that it, there's a consistency. And the story keeps going even though it's been written over this many years and a period of time. That's talking about 60 different generations. And there's 40 different authors who are contributing to these 66 books. And yet there's a consistency between all of these authors over all these generations. They are writing from different locations. They have different backgrounds. Do people, do people today who come from um, a, a, different, a different area, can they tell a story differently? Okay, uh, we take an event. We take an event that, that is a historical point of view, and we take, um, let's talk about the civil rights movement. Let's talk about something that is not that long ago, okay? Would the current generation learning in high school have a different view about what took place and would, could explain it different than those who lived it? Would they have a different perception of it? Yes, they would have a different angle. They would talk about different aspects of it. Oh, here, let me, let me just give you a common current. The kids in high school today, kids who are graduating this year, have never known anything other when it comes to school than school shootings. Okay, they don't, they, ever since they've been in school, it has been in the public, school shootings. Okay, would that affect their thinking about school compared to when you were in school? Okay, you are, how do you respond to school shootings? Shock, horror. Okay, and everybody's shocked and horrified. But to you, it's like, wow, this is a weird day. Those who are living it and saying that they've had it ever since they've gone to school, they've heard about it, it's a different perception. Yes? Okay. Is there a different perception to World War II from a previous generation to, uh, than to those today? Yes. There's a need... There's a, rise, there's a rise internationally of Nazi politics. Okay, there's a rise to it. Why is that happening today? A gen, you know, when you were growing up, nobody would even talk about that. Why? Because still the horrors of it were still fresh. Different generations will, will see things differently. They'll have a different perception to it. Not when we come to the Bible. When the Bible, there's a consistency in its message. Think about it. Three different continents, 40 different authors, under various circumstances, and in different languages, totally different languages, that are writing and coming, and yet they all have the same message about the same God that has a continuity of explaining him and his, his means. It's an amazing thought that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. That all these different authors, different places, different times, different languages, that there isn't contradiction there. But there is. What does that tell you about the Bible? There was one superintending author that kept the theme going. So we look at it and say, okay, what else is there? There's the continuity of the Bible. What I mean by the continuity of the Bible is this. For ages, for generations, people have attacked and tried to discount it and disprove it. It started all the way back in the Old Testament. Through the book of Acts, they try to, they try, they face that idea of people trying to say the Bible isn't true, the Bible isn't true. Emperors. 
tried to get rid of the Bible, tried to destroy the Bible. In the first 300 years of the church, there was 10 different major persecutions that were imperial, that is from the, church, uh, from the uh, government of Rome. And they tried to disprove the Bible, they tried to discredit the Bible. And then it's gone all the way through the ages since then, different people have attacked it. And again, we are now living in an age where there is a, there is a, a heightened effort to try to discredit the Bible. And it's amazing how they can't over time it continues with its impact and it continues with its potency indicating that there is something more to this book than there is to any other book. I'll give you this, something that you personally can attest to. You can give evidence to this, the changes that are wrought by the Bible, how it impacts your mind, your heart, that it's made a difference, that it's made a change. You can't discredit this. This idea that this Bible, uh, this book has some tremendous uh, potential behind it, some, some authority, some power. And so we put that all together and say, okay, why do I accept the Bible from, the, from being from God? By faith, based on these evidential facts. So we said, number one, we're coming at the Bible, we're saying it is God's Word. Number two, here's another rule that we'll operate by. We would say this, that all of the Bible is beneficial and authoritative. All scripture is given by your inspiration and is profitable. Okay, that's a fact that we're going to say. This is a rule we're operating by, that all of it is valuable and helpful. Rule number three, it never contradicts itself. We accept this, we look at it, and we understand this. Any apparent contradictions are a lack of understanding. That we have to back up and say, okay, we got to study more. Why does it say this? I'll, I'll explain something that, that will deal with a lot of the contradictions in the next couple of minutes. Let me come back to that in a moment. Number four, the Bible can be more easily and accurately interpreted if we follow a literal approach. This is our rule. This is the way we accept it. This is how we are talking about the Bible, a literal approach. What we mean by taking the Bible literally is really, really, really important. How we approach it, what we mean by that is this. Okay, let me explain. Listen, listen very carefully because this is really critical that we approach this and don't let somebody intimidate us to question our approach to the Bible. Since God used human languages to communicate to humans, which he did, he used human languages. In fact, he didn't use just one language, he used, we just said it, he used three different languages. The languages that were the most impacting and pertinent to the people to whom he was communicating initially. And so God used human languages, okay? There are those who will say, well, Obviously, then, and, and, and I don't know, true or false. Well, some will advocate and say, well, when we get to heaven, we're going to find out that Greek is the language because the New Testament was written in Greek. Really, you want to make that statement? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, okay? So when you, when you start coming at those angles and saying, okay, which lang language is the heavenly language? We don't know. But what we're saying is God didn't use a heavenly language. God used an earthly language, three of them, to communicate. God used specific words and phrases. Now, I don't know where you're at when it comes to your point of view, but this, is, this will make all the difference in how you interpret the Scripture. Do you believe that God chose specific words, specific phrases, when he communicated? Or did those people... They just, God gave them an idea and they could choose whatever words they wanted. 
See, I don't accept that second thought. I don't accept that. What? They were, they were born along. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit let their personality come out. The Holy Spirit let their emotions come out. Galatians. Do you remember how Paul says, I am writing unto you. Do you remember what he says? And he's showing he's angry. Do anybody remember this? I'm writing unto you in big letters. Okay? Yeah. His point is, he was very emotional when he wrote that. He was very upset with the false teachers. And so God is superintending the people, but he doesn't, he doesn't say, write this word. Duh. It's not a robot. Okay? He's letting the personality come out, but he was superintending them to make sure it was the right thought. But more importantly, just thought. It was the exact wording. That is really important. I believe, now watch how this plays out. If, if you don't accept that, you've got some real issues. I believe that God specifically chose the word for, that's in the, in the New Testament, baptizo. He specifically chose baptizo. The word means to do what? To go under. You know, whatever way. It means to plunge under. He could have used another word called nipto or rantizo. They mean to pour or they mean to sprinkle. But he never used those words, nipto or rantizo, never used them. Every time you read baptism in the New Testament, in the epistles, it is always the word baptizo. However, when the King James wrote it, when they were writing it, they didn't want to offend the Church of England, which was doing what? Sprinkling and pouring on babies. So the authors didn't want to get in trouble with the Church of England and with the king, so they made up a new English word that you don't find before this time. They didn't put immerse, they put the word baptism. That's called, what they did is they took baptizo and they just put letter for letter. And they came up with a new word that, that was introduced to the English language in that 1611 time, that the new word is baptism. And therefore, if somebody said, well, what does that word mean? It means whatever you want it to mean, okay? Which created a mess in church history. I believe God specifically chose baptizo, to say we're going to plunge under because it shows the what? Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that that word is a specific term that he, it wasn't left, supposed to be left for interpretation. It was God's interpretation of it. And so you have phrases, you have words that God chose. And so we look at it, and this is, the, this is the approach we take as a church, that the specific words and phrases, the order of the words and phrases, were put in the text by God's superintending, bearing along those individuals so that they had the exact words they were supposed to put down. That's what we mean by verbal and plenary inspiration. Since God chose a specific time and occasion to speak to people, 
Okay? He chose when he was going to give Moses a message. He chose when he was going to have Isaiah write something. And this is very important to understand that the time and occasion has to be understood when you interpret it, when you, un- when you study it. Therefore, good Bible study begins with this. If I believe it's human languages, God chose the words, and God chose the time and occasion, I need to understand context. This is literal interpretation, understanding context. Context means understanding the setting. It means understanding the language. It means understanding to whom it was written, understanding their cultural practices, the time and occasion. The time and occasion, here, I'll give you an illustration of it, okay? When Paul, Paul is, is led by the Spirit, he is born along, And he's going to write to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, because you have a stomach ailment, take a little wine for your stomach. I believe that that's inspired by God. I believe that that's absolutely what God had him tell him. Take a little wine for your stomach. But for me to understand the application of that passage, is he saying, if your stomach's upset, go to the state store? That's the, now that's application, That application, if I'm going to be accurate with it, I need to understand what? I I need to understand contextually what the wine was like. I need to understand why he doesn't say, take the water. Well, you all know why he didn't say, take the water. Probably his stomach problems were because he was drinking only the water. Because water that's not purified, what does it do to your stomach? Does it upset your stomach? Yeah. And when you travel, what do they often tell you not to do? Don't drink the water. Okay, we understand that. And we look and say, cultural, what was the water like? What was the, the region like? What, do, what was the wines like? And so when we take that passage and if we're going to interpret it literally, we need to understand what's he talking about at that moment. Greet one another with a, you didn't do it this morning. I don't think most of you smacked, you know, gave us big you know, lip smack to one another when you came in. Okay. So if we're going to take it literally, we need, we, that doesn't mean that we're going to walk up and kiss each other. It means we're going to understand the context. And I want to know contextually, I believe it was the word, the holy kiss, you know, that he used it. But what was that in that time to those people in that? But do people greet differently in different countries even now? Well, how do they greet now? What differences do we have in greetings? Yeah? Shake hands. Yeah. Some countries, do the men kiss? Men kiss men? Does that still happen? The answer is yes. Okay, it still happens. In some countries, do they bow to each other? Yes. And the president gets in trouble when he bows because we Americans think the bow is, is submission. Okay? But in different countries, does it mean that? Okay, so... See, all those little, those, those little points that when we say we interpret the Bible literally, it doesn't mean that we discount that. It means we take it into account. 
We want to know the wording. We want to know the culture. We want to know the setting. And so we're trying to be very accurate before we come to how do we live this out? What were they getting at? Um, here's what we mean. We, we understand literally that God spoke to people the way people speak to people. He used their language. Could God use sarcasm? Do you use sarcasm? You do it all the time. Okay. Do you use exaggeration? You, you probably did this week. I'm so hungry I could eat a... Okay, whatever you want to put in there. Most of us would say immediately, I'm so hungry I could eat a, you know, a horse, a cow. Really? Literally, you're going to go and eat a horse? Okay, that, no, you meant it as an expression. Okay, and by the way, do people talk different in different areas? One of our folks was telling me they were in the hospital and they asked the nurse to out in the light. The nurse said, I have no clue what you're talking about. Okay. And most of America would have no idea what you mean by out in the light. Some of you from this region understand what they were saying. Do what? Turn the light off. Makes perfect sense. Here's what you, 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 in this region, they do it all the time. It's all. It's all. It's all what? Okay. What do you, when, but when you hear that in this region, it's all, you immediately think, yeah. Do you want to go with a while? What? That's unique, okay? I mean, you, you know, if, if I were to say, you know, I want to pop, you'd give me one, okay? <laughs> exactly. What kind of pop, what kind of pop are you joking about? A smack. That's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking for, I'm not asking for a soda, I'm asking for a pop. Okay? Because do different areas use different terms? Now, and I'm, and I'm belaboring this because I want you to understand that when we approach the Bible, is it important to understand their euphemisms? Their, what they, how they talked? Can we use extra biblical literature to help us to interpret the Bible? Yes, because it reveals how did they, they talked, like God talked to the people in the Bible like people talk to people. And so when we say we're approaching it literally, we're understanding how did people talk to each other. Could God use exaggeration? Could he use metaphors? Could he use similes? Could he use, you know, humor? Could he use parables? He did. We typically don't walk around saying parables. Okay, we don't. That's not our American speech, but it was very New Testament speech, very common. And so we need to understand that and, understand, and go to it. This is, this is critical mass as well. Understanding the clear general teaching of the Bible should help us to understand the harder to understand passages. Let, let me throw this out. Okay, we said already there are no contradictions in the Bible. I believe that. I, I'm convinced of that because God wrote it. God doesn't contradict himself. And so he, there, 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 are, um, there are no areas where God says, okay, don't do, don't, you know, don't sin. And then later on he says, oh, go ahead. I changed mine. You can go and sin all you want. That's just, you know, yes, God is the same yesterday, today, forever. Okay, so he's consistent in his teaching is his point. With that in mind, are there some passages that are hard to understand? Okay, yes, no? I'll give you one. 
I'll give you one that's, that you just grab and look at in, in Acts chapter 2, where he's preaching the gospel at Pentecost. Sirs, what, was, what do we need to do? Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. How do some people interpret that? I need to repent, plus I need to get baptized so that I can have forgiveness of sins. You look at that passage and you say, well, it doesn't say that. It says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Can you see why somebody might run with that passage and say baptism is a part of salvation? If they only use that verse and that verse alone? Yes. Let's be honest about it. If that was the only verse we had, we could be confused. We would be uncertain. That verse has two possibilities. It actually has more. Repent and also baptism helps bring about salvation. That's, that's a possibility based on hermeneutic. Repent and then subsequently your baptism shows your repentance and you're going to have you're going to have salvation not because of baptism but because of repentance so either either your your repentance and salvation are equal or one is subordinate the baptism I'm sorry either repentance and baptism are equal or repentance and baptism one is subordinate okay And you say, okay, what does the Greek say? It doesn't clarify it for us. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. The gar, the baptism, the the words there, it doesn't give us clarity by just going to the Greek. So then how do we approach that text? If you have a text that has multiple options, then what do you look at to declare what option is accurate? You compare all the other passages that talk about repentance and baptism. And you compare. And you look at them and you say, okay, uh, what, what is, there, is there a clear teaching in other texts that will help clarify what this multiple option text is giving me? And the answer is, oh yeah. Yeah, it happens all the time. There, there are passages that talk about the possibility. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 10. They talk about somebody who has, uh, somebody who can come to a point where they can, they, they can no longer repent. They're beyond the idea of being restored. Some run to that passage and say, oh, you can lose your salvation. It's a difficult text. You and I cannot say, we cannot stand here and be honest and say, oh, there are no no difficult passages in Scripture. Are you kidding me? There are some that are really hard to understand. He even says that when he writes about Paul's writing and the other writings that some are hard to understand. And you say, okay, are there some texts that could be interpreted two different ways? Yes. I, I started this whole class off, with not today, but two weeks ago. The Bible is not of private interpretation. Peter's writings. There is no scripture given a private interpretation. 
two totally different points of view of interpretation. The Catholic point of view says that you cannot privately interpret your Bible. That's what it means. We say that it is of no private interpretation, meaning it isn't limited to any one individual, and only that priest can interpret it for you. Those are two opposite meanings. Which one is accurate? You, from that very singular text, you're not going to figure it out. You're going to have to look at other, the whole. Other, you, oftentimes when you come to a difficult passage, your immediate context takes care of it. Follow the discussion, the argument. And it's like, oh, that makes sense. Or the book. Or you have to look at other scriptures. That's what we mean by that. We're saying that as a literalist, we come and we understand there are some difficult passages, but what we do is we interpret, we interpret the complicated by what is so clear. We interpret the obscure, one singular verse that might have a reference. We interpret it based upon the preponderance of other scripture. That's a literal approach. It is saying there are difficult passages, and we do recognize that some might by themselves have two different interpretations. But we come back and we say, okay, now let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. It is not a contradiction. It is just a complicated text that we need to look at the, other, the whole. Number four, we need to figure out what was meant to the original audience before we bring it to our day and application. Okay, what did, what did it mean to those people? He chose the people, he chose the occasion, he chose the time to give the book of Revelation. He chose the people the time to give the book of Corinthians. He chose the time and the place to give the message um, of the Sermon on the Mount. What he says in the Sermon on the Mount was preached originally to what group of people? Jews, we have to understand their mindset, where he was coming from when he was talking to those individuals. For instance, we need to understand these phrases in their historical context before you just say, okay, this, the Bible says, greet one another with a holy kiss, so I'm going to get up and I'm going to just start kissing the ladies. What would that do? Let's, let's be frank. What, what, what would you do if some guy in the here starts coming up and kissing all the ladies? He'd pop you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We'd be, we'd be, I was going to say it backwards, and we'd be afeard of that guy, right? Okay. Um, what about pluck out your eye, cut off your hand? Should you understand what that meant, or do you go out and literally do it? It was a euphemism. It was a common phrase that they used in rabbinic writings that the idea was very clear. It wasn't unique to Jesus. He used a common expression that basically meant what? Take drastic measures. That they understood. His audience understood. Where it talks about, okay, he that, that gives not his daughter in marriage, he does well. Okay, that passage says to all of us, we should not let our daughters get married. They should live with us forever. Wait a minute. There's other texts that say it is not good that a man be alone. Well, wait, there's a contradiction. No, there's no contradiction. In the setting that he says this, what is he, what, what's the setting? That he says it's good not to give your daughter marriage. No, no, he's talking about current times in 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians 7. But you're close. What is going on right at that moment? Persecution is taking place. And he's saying, you know what? 
to handle the persecution, it might be better if we're not dealing with married couples, uh, marriage, or kids. Because the bottom line is, if you were persecuted, you might stand for the faith real easily, but when they start touching your family, could that be more of pushing over the top? Yeah. And so that's what he's talking about. Withhold not... Most people struggle with this. Withhold not correction from a child. If you beat him with a rod, he's not going to die. How does that sound to most Americans? Seriously, how does that sound to you when you first read it? Does it sound like abuse? Does it sound like, I don't want to read this out loud to my unsaved friends, that the Bible says beat him with a rod. Okay, But if you understand the culture and the context of what they meant by a rod... It's basically saying, spank them with a paddle. But, but we have to understand culture. Forbid not to speak with tongues. You better understand the context, because that's what the verse says. Stop forbidding people to speak with the gift of tongues. But you have to understand the context of when he said that, to whom he said that, at that moment. So it's really, really critical we do it. Number five, and I'll stop here. God gave certain sections for certain people at certain times. What we mean by this is this fact. Although all of the Bible is profitable, it doesn't all specifically apply to me. Why? Because I have to understand to whom is he writing at that moment what was going on. Okay? At that time. At that moment. So it has, it has principle. It might have story. It might have helpful illustration. But not every single practice or command applies to me. If so, you grab, go to Genesis chapter 11, and it says, get you up out of your father's country and go until I tell you to stop. I'm paraphrasing. That means it's a command in Scripture. And when we sing the song, every commandment of the book, promise of the book is mine, every commandment is true. Really? Should we all get up and move until God tells us to stop? You might want to. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, what she said, it's, it doesn't mean it's not true. But for that person at that time, you, you better understand who's saying it. Yea, hath God said... Okay, we want to know who's speaking here, what are they speaking about, and to whom they're speaking. We're going to pick up on this, this thought, and we're going to get into Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 next week.